and it shows that even a man who's a, a pillar in the church, an apostle uh, in the church, a foundation of the church, can stumble and fall, which is, again, um, you know, a warning to the rest of us. If he could stumble, how careful we have to be in our day not to compromise the gospel. my dear listeners, you're listening to That They Might Know with Joe Durso, your host, and I'm really excited because I have someone very special with me today, my in-the-flesh brother and brother in the Lord, Frank Durso, and so he's going to be doing a little interview on chapter four uh, from my book. What's the title of the book? Jesus, the Son of Man, the Penetrating Truth of God's Love. Okay, so you begin with your first question for me. Joe, what, what, why do you think uh, the Son of Man is Jesus' favorite saying for himself? What significance does that have? All right, well, this is a great question because that is the subject, the topic of, that, of this chapter. And reason, the reason is because uh, over 74 times uh, in, in the book of Ezekiel, the Messiah that would come, which is Jesus Christ, would uh, be, the, uh, was referred to as the Son of Man. And the reason is because he was going to an obstinate people, he was going to a rebellious people, he was going to the house of Israel, which really every people is in the world, because we're all from the same person, Adam, as in Romans tells us. And as sons of Adam, we have sinned in the same way that he did, in that we rebel against God. We don't have a right relationship with God. And Jesus came as the Messiah to speak into people's, to speak to people, speak to their hearts, that we are that type of rebellious, sinful people. Before anything gets dealt with, before God redeems man, man is to understand that he's a sinful person, that he's rebellious, he doesn't like God. That's why he nailed him to a cross. So in this chapter, I'm dealing with that subject of Jesus Speaking to people the truth. Why, if he is called the son of man, why does God call Ezekiel the son of man? Another good question. So I think in the way that the, New, the, the Old Testament is written, the Bible, uh, there's very clear spoken truth. Uh, it's all clear. But, you know, then behind the uh, the scriptures, so to speak, in a in a in a less obvious way, um, there's the Messiah. So the Messiah, uh, he's pictured in people. Ezekiel wasn't the son of man; he was a prophet. He was a man. He was a man who himself had to be redeemed, and then in order to be used of God. Uh, but he's a picture of the true Son of Man, who is Christ who was born into the race. He was never really meant to be. He was never part of the race, just as natural course of events go for the rest of the people. Um, but he was God. In, as the eternal God, uh, God overshadowed the Virgin Mary, and he became a man. And he became the Son of Man, the fulfillment of what Ezekiel pictured. Another great question. Thank you for that. On page 42, you have uh, a sentence here. Jesus would not so much as inadvertently speak or do 
anything that would allow a person to infer something to their hurt. Now, he was referring to his mother. Can you explain what that was? So, uh, he, he, you know, <clears throat> the saying is uh, there's nothing um, so, what is it, hurtful than to hear the truth. I think I'm getting that quite right. Uh, but uh, what I meant by that was Jesus wasn't speaking the truth to people to hurt people. He was speaking the truth to people because the truth is what we all need to hear. You know, it's very easy to be self-deceived. You know, the heart is deceitful above all things, the scripture says, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And the, you know, the answer to that question is no one can fully know their, even their own heart. And so Jesus comes and he speaks the truth, not to hurt people, but in order to help people. And this he did with his mother Mary as well, and I... Want to go into details in, in the chapter? Did you want me to go into those details now? No, it's okay. The, I, I, this comes right after the statement that she is not the mother of God. Now, Jesus was God. How can uh, we reconcile that? What, how, do, how do we make sense out of that she is not the mother of God since Jesus was God? That she's, um, well, how do you explain that? Good, again. Um, so we understand as biblically alert people that uh, Mary was the mother of Jesus, the man, because God is fully man and fully God, as it states in numerous confessions of faith and as it's clearly articulated in the Bible. <clears throat> so as being fully man, he needed an earthly mother. And that was Mary. So she was the mother of the earthly Jesus. But he was also the eternal God, and she, she did, doesn't give birth to him. Did Mary possess anything special why God chose her above other women? Uh, well, she had saving faith, undoubtedly. She had been a person who had come to the place, like all Old Testament saints do, even though it's not, it's the way New Testament saints do. It's just with a different knowledge, more knowledge, having Christ having come and fulfilled the will of the Father. But in, in Old Testament, they had a picture, you know, even in the, we were talking about this morning, two of us, uh, the altar, and it's the altar of sacrifice. So even that the law was given at Mount Sinai, and men knew that God had standards for how we would live, uh, at the exact same time, there was a, a sacrifice that had to be made in order to redeem men from their sinfulness. So she had that picture, and like every Old Testament saint, whether it was a Moses or a Joseph or a Daniel, they came to repentance and faith in, uh, in God who provides a way for man to be saved. She obviously had to have that, and that's what she, and that saving faith was the people that God uses, he uses those people. Not that they've never sinned, but that they're repentant of sin and put their faith in God. The, the Bible, yeah, the Bible tells us that her and her husband Joseph went to the temple and that they uh, made sacrifices. So then what you're saying is she too was a sinner. She too, uh, yes, uh, like for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God in Romans 6.23. So yes, she was a sinful person, but a repentant sinner. And there's a difference between the two. Does the removal of sin when we repent stop us from sinning 
our Christian life? Another good question. So 1 John makes it very clear if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And so once having come to Christ, that the apostles, the apostle John was saying right in the first John chapter one, you know, the one who we've seen and heard, you know, we've, you know, we, we declare to you, this is Christ. And he did this so that his joy might be complete. Our joy might be complete when we see Jesus. And so he's talking about coming to faith in Christ but also, 1 John is about how you know that you're saved, and you know you're saved through, in that book, through some of the developments having come to a saving faith in Christ and having repented of sins. You, you, you come to a place where God imparts a new heart, uh, as it says in Corinthians. Old um, things have passed away. All things are becoming new. And so a person is in that progressive sanctification or changing of who they are. But perfection is, only takes place when we get to heaven. Could you... Uh, there were many men in the time of the Roman Empire that were crucified. Uh, how was Jesus' crucifixion any different what he suffered than what someone else suffered on the cross? Well, that's a big question. <clears throat> um, I want and, a big answer. <laughs> here he comes. I'm going to try to answer that. So uh, physically, there was no difference. Um, you know, having your skin torn and nails driven so that you're impaled and put to a piece of wood, um, that's all the same. All the agony that went along with it. Of course, he was, as most people were, they were scourged, which had their, it was a horrible process of just, and that was actually a little bit merciful, so people would die sooner. Um, but uh, the physical part was the same, uh, but the, there was a spiritual part um, also in the death because Jesus was uh, taking on the role, on the, the person of humanity, sinful men, in order to pay their price for sin. So God was going to pour out his anger and his wrath on Christ as a substitutionary sacrifice. And that never took place in anyone but Jesus Christ because only he could uh, fulfill that purpose because only he was God and only he had lived prior without any sin. I have a question you probably never heard. We know the Trinity is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You have, a, you have a son, everyone sires a family. Why is Jesus called the son, the father, the son? I mean, he, go, he is to, from all eternity. Is that looking forward to when he was coming to this planet? Why is he called a son and a father? I mean, because we have a, a concept of father and son. You know, we, we, we have a finite mind we can't understand, but do you have any thoughts on that? So uh, again, there's uh, and I'm I'm not good with names. You know, there's confessions of faith, and in one of the confessions of faith, it makes it very clear that we believe we believe in the only begotten Son, uh, begotten from the Father, not made, but begotten. So, and I no one can comprehend what I'm saying right now. 
it's even hard to understand it. Um, but we believe, as, as people who believe the Bible to be true, that God is eternal. He's without beginning of days or end of life. Uh, and so there's the Father who begets the Son, which means the Son comes from the Father. And I, I, I think that one of the reasons, at least one of the reasons why God made man in the way he did is a race, and that we beget fathers and sons, uh, is, is again the picture God. So in some way that we, don't under, we can't comprehend, the, the Son has always eternally been begotten by the Father. And that's as close as I can come. Do you have any th- thoughts? No, that's pretty good. <laughs> I, that's pretty good. Um, the book and, of course, the scriptures themselves say that Jesus died for the sins of the world. Are you saying that every person... Oh, that, are you saying that every person has cleansed by the blood of Christ? I am most definitely not saying that um, from, for two reasons. Number one, uh, you know, Jesus said that he, he prayed not for the world, but for those whom the Father gave him out of the world. So number one, Jesus pays the price for those people for whom he died. Now, I know that flies in the face of a lot of people. Maybe people will be listening to this. But the fact is, uh, we believe, you and I, we believe, and many others, uh, believe that God is sovereign. And that means he's sovereign over salvation. He's sovereign over who goes, gets saved, and who is shown that grace and who receives justice. Now, I don't, can't explain that. I can't, in the sense that I don't know how God's mind, no one does. Um, what we do believe and understand is that there's no double payment for sins. So if Christ were to die for the sins of people who would spend eternity paying the price for that sin, that would be paying twice over. God does not do anything that way. We might be unfair. We might do things that way as a fallen race, but God does not. So God sent Jesus into the world for die, to die for people for whom the Father gave him to die for. In God's sovereign grace, and that's what it is, grace. Uh, the Old and New Testament in the book here talks about how the hearts of true believers are changed. Uh, are the hearts of believers changed the same way in the Old and the New Testament? Or is there a difference? Is the Holy Spirit, uh, is the Holy Spirit um, very important in both Old and New Testaments, or is it just the New Testament? You, you just like to get me in trouble, though. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's a great, great question. I like an answer. <laughs> oh, yeah, just like when we were kids. <laughs> okay, so here's the thing, um, and I, I'm not speaking for every Reformed theologian when I say this. I'm speaking for some um, that uh, salvation is the same. As I previously said, the person comes to saving faith when they uh, understand they are sinful, too sinful to merit God's favor. So therefore, repentance is necessary. They have to turn from their sinfulness. Um, That being the case, 
they have to put their faith in something. And so in the Old Testament, they put their faith in, in a lamb that was given to them by God. Now, that, that lamb didn't actually take away sins. It, it didn't even take away sins in their conscience for very long because after that sacrifice took place and, oh, I'm cleansed before God, they'd go out and they'd sin again. And now their conscience is defiled and, and it's, you know, and, and now that's how they're going through life. And so you would need annual sacrifices to take away sin. Of course, in Hebrews, it makes it clear that Jesus died once for sin, and then he was raised from the dead, and he was uh, also came, went up to the Father, resurrected um, before the Father, and it's, it's done. It's complete. How can a person know for sure that he's saved? And is assurance really important in the life of a believer? Assurance is absolutely important. I, 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 let me just say, as far as the work of the Holy Spirit that you asked me, I know <laughs> you weren't really trying to get me in trouble, but let me just say this. The Holy Spirit, it's, it's impossible for a person to have a renewed heart and a renewed mind apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm, I'm not saying, like I've already stated, that uh, Old Testament saints and New Testament saints are exactly like they couldn't be, because they don't have the exact same knowledge. We saw that God became the sacrifice in the New Testament, and there's a greater responsibility, and there's a with greater illumination. And so things are not exactly the same. But, you know, the whole point in all of this, you know, why falling into sin, why, and it's complicated, and there's many sides to it, but a big side to it is understanding that God is the source of all things, even in salvation. Mm-hmm. We can't do anything. We can't keep our heart beating for another minute right. without right. God. Now, what was the second you, question you just asked me? It was the second question. Well, well, I, I just said it's assurance that oh, assurance. important to a believer. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. As a matter of fact, I believe that God wants us to have an assurance. I, I, can't, I can't. It's detrimental to our Christian uh, experience. But you mentioned a woman here in the Bible, uh, in, in your book, uh, that had an abortion. She called the radio station. And uh, she can't believe that she is forgiven. How does God view that? Is, is, there, is there any sin that is unforgivable? Can God, forgive, is kinda, can God forgive all sins? You're kind of tying this in with assurance of salvation. Don't put words in my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Are you leaving this stuff in? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, here's the thing. You know, uh, how can you come to an assurance of salvation when there's some sins that would keep you out of heaven? And I'm not talking about what God, Jesus talks about with the unpardonable sin. Uh, that's kind of a different, but we're talking about just sins, right? Sins, yeah. And, sins. and, and how, how it's important that we know that we are saved. We can't go through our Christian life constantly doubting. I, I don't believe that God wants us to live that way. What about this woman that committed this uh, abortion? Can she ever reconcile? Apparently, she just can't believe that God forgave her. Right. <clears throat> well, let me say it this way. It is killing another human being. Right. And, and a lot of people do, you know, you talk to them and you say, well, you know, if you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven? Well, I don't think anybody can know that. Well, if you were to die tonight, and God would say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Is murder the worst sin that you can commit? <laughs> and people will say, well, I never killed anybody. 
you know, that's right where they go. Isn't murder listed with some of the other sins that we deem not as serious? God, actually, they are. Yeah. Gossip. Gossip. Right. Right. Differences. There's plenty of sins that are right there along with killing. So. So I answered my own question. I'm going to, yeah, you did. Uh, can I add to it? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Be my guest. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, so. Actually, you're my guest, but I'm appreciating that you're here. <laughs> so here's the thing. Um, there's three types, if I want to use that word, of assurance of salvation. One I call it, one it would be objective faith, where you read the scriptures and you recognize, wow, I'm, I'm saved. And the reason I say that is because that's how I came to my first level of if I could use that, assurance of salvation, because I read uh, Romans, and I noticed that everything was in the past tense. And Paul is talking to the, the believers at Rome, and he's saying, you are saved, past tense. Well, if I'm saved, then that doesn't mean I'm going to get saved, or I hope to be saved. It means I'm saved. So there's this scripture, the scripture, when you look at it, and you receive it objectively, like it's saying something to me, and it's saying I'm saved. And then there's subjective assurance. When you look at your life and you realize that changes are making place that you're really not responsible for. Obviously, God is working in your life, and he's making you a holier, better person. You, you can't take credit for it. Uh, we, w- we wouldn't want to, uh, because the whole point is that God is doing something in me. So there's objective subjective, and then there's what the Bible calls the sealing of the Spirit. Three verses, two in Ephesians, and we're sealed by the Spirit. Now, that's, doesn't, that's not for God's benefit, but that's for our benefit, where the Holy Spirit comes within a person's heart, and He gives assurance of salvation. You know, we, we pray in Romans chapter 8, and it says, you know, we, we pray, Abba, Father. Where do we get that knowledge that God is our Father? You can... Read it in the scriptures, it's true. But it goes deeper than that. When, when you're sealed by the Holy Spirit, you have an internal assurance that you belong to God. How's that? Good, very good. Very good. Um, what was the problem? Oh, all right, let, let's put it this way. Um, Jesus' brothers, Jude, James, we have evidence that they were not saved before the crucifixion? There is evidence. Um, you know, they, they had a resentment to him. Now, this is at a point in Jesus' life in the three years where he was an itinerant preacher. And uh, the, there was this growing animosity and hatred by the religious leaders of the day. And even his disciples said, what, you're going to go back to Jerusalem? And they just tried to stone you and you're going to go back there? And um, the, the brothers are saying, you know, why don't you announce yourself? I mean, if you're the Messiah and it's, almost like a picture like they wanted him to go get killed. Um, and, you know, I, I think we should look at it that they grew up in a house with a perfect brother. I mean, it's hard enough to grow up in a house where everybody in the house is imperfect sinners, and you're like, oh, you know better than me. But when you grow up with a house with someone who you can't ever find fault with, I'm not making excuses for them. That that had to be a tough nut to, 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 to crack. And for them like really as examples of the human race uh, and a fallen race. We basically hate God. We want to be the God of our own life, the captain of our own ship, and it just it doesn't work. And so that's where being humbled 
at the cross where Christ died to renew us and, and bring us into a right relationship with Christ is so important. What was the problem between Peter and Paul that we read about in Acts? The problem... And, and why did Peter stumble the way he did? Well, um, the problem was Paul was not going to compromise on the gospel, something that every pastor in every generation and in our generation needs to put as, as first priority above all things. What is the gospel and not to compromise? And that's one of the reasons why I can give kudos to John MacArthur because in my mind and heart, along with other men like R.C. Sproul, the church where you go, you know, our, our men are of in, uh, integrity, men who understand that the gospel has to be uncompromising, first take first place, and they would never uncompromise on anything, certainly not knowingly. Um, and so Peter and Paul, Peter didn't, he kind of lost track for whatever reasons uh, with the circumcision and the religious leaders um, who kind of came in and they were throwing, you know, uh, stumbling blocks before the people. And he had to be circumcised, and he wasn't eating. You know, he had a, you know, with the Gentiles and issues arose, and, and it shows that even a man who's a, a pillar in the church, an apostle uh, in the church, a foundation of the church, can stumble and fall. Which is again, um, you know, a warning to the rest of us if he could stumble. How careful we have to be in our day not to compromise the gospel. What does it say about James that he never even mentions the fact in his epistle that he was the half-brother of Jesus? You think that shows a quality in his life? I think it shows that James was a man who wasn't a name-dropper. He wasn't, you know, I grew up with Jesus. He could have went, but you know, the men who walked with Jesus, the men who understood Jesus Christ for what he was, a sacrifice for sin. <clears throat> this brings us to Luke 7.47, which is a, a major verse in the Bible. I, I think it's a big verse uh, because, you know, not only because the number 747 but uh, in the book of Luke, but it, it, it also shows the reason behind humility. And so Jesus goes, just to summarize this real quick, he goes into Simon's house, who's a religious leader. Simon invited him there. And while he's there, there's a woman, and she's cleaning Jesus' feet. And Simon looks, and he thinks to himself, you know, if this man were truly a prophet, he would know that this was a sinful woman, and he wouldn't allow her to touch him. And Jesus, reading his mind, looked at Simon, and he said, you know, there was two men, and they owed a big debt to someone, and they were both forgiven. One owed a little, one owed a lot. Which one do you think loved the man more? And Simon thinks about it, and he says, well, I suppose the one who was forgiven more. And Jesus says, well, see, you answered well. This, this, you know, when I came to this house, you didn't do anything for me. This woman hasn't ceased to wash me with the tear, my feet with the tears of her, her tears and, and dry my feet with her hair. And he said, then he says, 747, big verse, those who are forgiven little, the same love little. And so the point is clear that forgiveness is a key element in a Christian's life that is the root reason why they love God, because we've been forgiven so much. Now, 
let me just hasten to add, the real reason that we should love God is because God is good. He's righteous, he's moral, he's loving, he's just everything that we would ever want in ourselves and in the, in the God of the universe. He is those things. But as sinful men, we, we understand forgiveness first. Okay, we've come to the end of the chapter. Uh, when, uh, one, one thing I want to add, that when Jesus prayed his priestly prayer, and he mentions that, he said that he does not ask them to pray for all those in the world. What does that tell us? What does that, what does that, um, what does that mean to us? When he, he said, um, not ask that you pray for everyone in the world. How do we reconcile that with the love of God? <clears throat> well, that's a, that's a great question. Um, and I, I'm just going to answer it this way. We, we can ask the question, why doesn't God save everyone? Or we could ask the question, why does God save anyone? And that's really the better way. We, we don't deserve to be saved. If we did, it wouldn't be of grace. It wouldn't be undeserved. It wouldn't be grace. Grace denotes the fact that we're getting something that we, we don't deserve. We deserve hell. And that's where the Christian begins. He starts with the fact that he's a sinner deserving the punishment of God. Which if you study revivals, and revivals are those periods of time when God comes down in a fuller way, like at Pentecost, 5,000 being saved at one time, and multitudes and multitudes. Why were these people being saved? Was it the, because of the apostles or because of men? No. It was because God came down in grace and he decided, I'm going to save 5,000 people today. And people who would never otherwise receive Jesus Christ. They would never believe in God. They could never love God. Let me read a verse from Romans chapter 8. And You know, the book of Romans is like the gospel in a nutshell. It's like the summary of the Bible. And in Romans chapter 8, it says, the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. And here's the key part of Romans 8, 7, for it is not even able to do so. So man is unwilling and unable to submit to God. The greatest thing a person can ever do to submit to God is to recognize that they're a sinner and then they need salvation and then they need Christ. That would never happen apart from God pouring out his grace on a person and, and, and causing their heart to be changed, it becomes new, it becomes uh, loving towards God, submissive to God. And at that time, when that happens, then people come to a saving knowledge of Christ. It was true in, in, Peter, in Jesus' brothers, earthly brothers, it was true in his mother, and, uh, and that's in the Gospels. All you have to do is read the, the Gospel of Luke. Well, thanks, Joe. I think we really touched on some important questions and answers. And we look forward to our next visit. Excellent. I do. I do, too. Thank you, my uh, dear listeners. 
I, I hope that this will raise questions in your mind and heart. I hope it will give you answers. Uh, I hope if you do have further questions, though, you will write um, to me. You can get that on the website uh, uh, or and, and let me know what those questions are. I'd be happy to answer. Uh, other than that, this is my brother, Frank Durso, and myself, Joe, and we're wishing you well and, uh, and hoping that you're blessed by God after hearing this podcast. And a happy Thanksgiving to everybody. And a happy Thanksgiving. Thank you for that. Happy Thanksgiving, Frank. Yeah, happy Thanksgiving, Joe. Okay, see you. Don't eat too much. <laughs> we will.